Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. My name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with Michael Zarling, and uh, we are going to cover chapters 11 through 15 of the book of Revelation today. So uh, we're glad that you are joining us, and uh, there are some images in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 11 that um, might be a, a little bit tricky at first glance. Uh, the one that sticks out the most is the two witnesses, uh, these two men walking together and uh, condemning evil um, and uh, dressed, in, dressed in black. You know, you could maybe make a comment there about uh, the, the theater and movies and Men in Black. Oh, Men in Black, yeah. Or uh, one of your favorite country music singers, too, The Man in Black. Oh, no, I'm not a country music fan. Oh, you're not, I thought. But are you talking about Johnny Cash? Yeah, I thought I saw you wearing I, your Johnny Cash shirt the other day. I don't know if I have a Johnny Cash shirt. I do like Johnny Cash. I didn't, I, I didn't know, I wouldn't have categorized him as country. I don't know what I would have categorized him as, but... Yeah, so John, in the first verses, handed a measuring rod. And as I've said before in the other two podcasts on Revelation, uh, this is not new imagery. This is imagery that is very similar to Ezekiel. Uh, that Ezekiel chapter 40, uh, he is given a, a measuring rod, uh, and he's measuring the new temple and the new land of Israel. And now John is supposed to do the same thing now in Revelation of measuring the holy city. And the holy city here represents the whole visible church. It contains both the believers and the hypocrites. So he measures the area where the believers are, but not where the unbelievers are. And then the two witnesses that you mentioned, and they're pictured in different ways as the uh, two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, those represent the faithful preachers of God's word uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit works through the witnesses, mouths, and so forth. And just like Elijah and Moses were the main witnesses of the Old Testament, now you have these two witnesses preaching. Uh, they have power to do miracles. They can uh, cause a drought as long as they are preaching. Uh, it even says that, that they can strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Um, this this kind of makes me think, um, how come I don't have this power? <laughs> Uh, it, 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 it's the teachers of the truth, obviously, uh, the f true prophets, and they are, um, they are paired up. That certainly reflects the way that Jesus sent his disciples out. Uh, it might actually be a good philosophy for, for mission work if you think about it. A lot of times, I was talking not long ago with somebody who was discussing foreign missions and sending missionaries to new mission fields. And in our, in our Wisconsin Synod, our national church body, uh, we've typically done that by sending out one missionary to a place at a time. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, I think there is a lot of advantage to thinking about sending out, uh, as Jesus did, sending out preachers two by two. Uh, that way it, you have a, an establishment of testimony with two or three witnesses. Uh, you have um, a, 
a, a brother that can encourage you uh, along along the rough and rocky places in the journey. Um, and uh, you, you're not acting as a rogue agent all by yourself. Um, if uh, if Jesus had wanted to send them out one at a time, that might be the uh, problem that they would run into. They would uh, people would say, "Well, you're just." spouting off about your own religion. But now if we have two, then uh, that adds some uh, authority to it. And these two witnesses do have the authority from God that they're able to uh, call down fire uh, that comes out of their mouths to consume them. And then that's a picture of what Elijah did when wicked king Ahaziah uh, commanded him to come and uh, Elijah called down fire uh, lightning from heaven and burned up uh, a group of 50 men and then a second group of 50 men. And finally, the third commander of the 50 men said, hey, he fell down on his knees before Elijah. Hey, don't call down fire on me. And then Elijah was told by God to go. And then the I, sec- I, th- I think that might have been Elisha. Uh, it's Elijah, 2 Kings 1. Okay. All right. I was doing my homework, Jeremy. Good, okay. good. Uh, and then... It also says that they had the authority to shut the sky. Well, that's also Elijah, not Elisha. That, that, one, I, that one I remember. Okay, that Elijah told Ahab that it would not rain until Elijah commanded it. And then it says that uh, having the authority to turn water into blood, that's the first plague that Moses used. So again, uh, everything in Revelation, well, most of the things in Revelation you can pick up on if you know the rest of Scripture. There was a seminary professor who preached this uh, text as a basis for a graduation sermon. It was the year before I graduated from seminary, and I didn't um, hear about it. Uh, I, I didn't hear it myself, but I did hear about it. And um, I, I guess it, it, what I heard was that it was a little bit unsettling because the fact is that these two witnesses die and uh, all of the people on earth are so happy that these two witnesses are finally shut up, that they're not uh, condemning sin anymore, that they even do things like send each other gifts. Uh, they, they have parties to celebrate the demise of the two witnesses. Um, but then there is a resurrection that John sees of the two witnesses. And uh, it, it can be kind of an unsettling thing to think about the animosity that we face in the outside world and uh, and how death is a reality and a, a crown of honor that uh, Jesus does grant to certain of his followers. And uh, this is going to take place then for uh, 1,260 days, 42 months, uh, three and a half years. You're going to hear that uh, here those time, the time frame in chapter 11 and then throughout the rest of Revelation. What that means then is the rest of, or the New Testament time that we're living in. So uh, this kind of persecution on God's saints is going to happen. Even dragging the bodies of the saints through the city and not burying them. And when I read that, I pictured the movie Black Hawk Down, you know, our military uh, helicopter goes down, I think it's Somalia, and then they, they uh, grab the American soldiers and they're killed and they dragged out in the street. And that's what, uh, that's what the enemies of God will do to God's saints. But 
We're grateful that even though there's going to be that persecution and the desecration of bodies for God's saints, uh, as you said, Jeremy, then uh, there's resurrection at the end. The, you brought up those numbers, and it is important to keep track of the numbers in Revelation, uh, the 42 months, 1260 days. And uh, if you do your math, uh, those are those are always going to be a three and a half. Uh, they're coming out either to some, you know, three and a half uh months or three and a half years, but that three and a half, uh, the idea is that um, you, you, you see three and a half and you think that doesn't seem right, that, that sh that's a fraction. Uh, well, add another uh, piece of the fraction on and you've got two three and a halves, it brings it to seven. Uh, and then uh, that is going to be the end of the visions or the end of the um, uh, revelation. And uh, this chapter itself ends with um, another picture of Judgment Day and uh, another camera angle, like we've been saying all along, of the, the football play or the, the hockey goal or whatever sport you like where you see instant replays in it. Um, the one thing you may want to take note of is in uh, verses 16 and following and, and verse 15, there's a song. And... It's easy to think when you read the songs in Revelation that, oh, this is something happy or cheerful or joyful. Uh, but the odd thing about this song is that as beautiful as it is, um, it, it doesn't have, a, it has a very somber tone. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say, is it's just saying um, that God is going to take, take out justice. He's going to avenge his saints. Anything else on this chapter? No. So... As difficult as chapter 11 is to understand, I think chapter 12 is much easier to understand the symbolism. So this chapter then begins the second half of Revelation. It offers us a close-up look of Satan and his henchmen. Uh, so this is the first of a series of seven visions. Uh, and so this chapter is one of the most important chapters in Revelation because it clearly identifies the time span of Revelation. Uh, and so the first thing is that there's a great sign in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. She cried out in pain and agony, and she gave birth. So is this Mary, Jeremy? Well, I can certainly see why people would think that. And, uh, and I, I also don't want to say it's not Mary or, you know, you wouldn't really want to say encounter somebody reading Revelation 12 and they say, oh, this is talking about Mary. And, and you wouldn't walk up to them and say, you idiot, how could you possibly think this is the Virgin Mary? Uh, what I like to say is it's not just Mary. Um, Mary is a believer. And uh, so that makes her part of the church. She is part of the sum total of all believers. And uh, there are plenty of signs and uh, symbols in this chapter that tell us the woman we're talking about here is the church. So what happens here, just a brief overview of this chapter, is John is describe, describing the Christian church giving birth to a child, and that's Jesus. 
And then the great dragon of the devil, it's a red dragon with the seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. It is going after, uh, it is going after the birth of Jesus. And you see the dragon trying to do that right away with King Herod. Uh, this is a dragon that swept a third of the stars out of the sky, talking about sweeping a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. Uh, the church gave birth to a son who is Jesus, uh, and then Jesus then, this child, is snatched up to heaven, Christ's ascension. The woman, the church, fled into the wilderness, and she was there suffering and surviving for, again, 1,260 days, so that would be the New Testament. Uh, yeah, I think, and that is another good a case in point for talking about this being the church instead of Mary, um, that uh, she she hasn't been living for 1260 days. Um, at least we don't have any proof of that. And if we don't have any proof of it, then we really shouldn't have any reason to be saying it or talking about it. Um, that brings us to verse seven, where uh, there was war in heaven. Now, I've always had students when we get to that verse who ask, uh, now, how can that be? How can there be war in heaven? And I try to explain it by saying, well, don't think of it as this is the uh, glorious abode of God and the departed saints. And, and it's not like, well, for a, a day or two, suddenly heaven wasn't wonderful and uh, people were like, can you believe that war that happened? Uh, the departed saints didn't have any kind of uh, experience like that. This is when it says heaven, it's referring to the unseen realms, the, the whole region or uh, dimension, you might say, of uh, where angels and, and spirits and demons and God exist outside of our physical, visible reality. And that great dragon, the devil, was thrown down out of the spiritual realm and then here on earth where he is going to lead the whole world astray. And one of my favorite images uh, in the Bible is this one of St. Michael, the archangel, standing with his foot on the throat of the dragon or sometimes just the evil demon of the devil and got his sword raised in victory. Uh, look it up. Uh, Google it. There's plenty of artwork like that of uh, St. Michael being victorious. But when does that take place when Jesus said to his disciples, I saw the devil being cast out of the sky? And when does well, this battle take place? And this is we're going to use this. I'm going to use the same rule that I have throughout interpreting the book of Revelation, that this is just this is not just one particular time. It's a. Uh, it's, it's a whole bunch of times that are very similar to each other. So you could, of course, see the first time when, when Satan was thrown out of heaven. Uh, but you can also see any time that uh, God and his angels defeat uh, Satan and, and what he wants to do, that there is the is the archangel and, and his army casting Satan down. Um, so it, it, it could be a lot of different cases. But the main, main time that... Uh, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent was at Jesus' crucifixion. When he was hurled down and then Jesus, as the Son of God, stepped down and crushed the ancient serpent's head and being struck then in the heel. Uh, and again, another song. And this is a song that we hear uh, 
in different formats in our Lutheran worship. Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Uh, that's right before we start singing uh, the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy in the Lord's Supper. And then how did the saints and the angels, because now the saints are included in the defeat of the dragon and the devil, or the dragon and his demons, it's they conquered him, verse 11, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, that they used the blood of the sacrificial lamb and they used the word, which is Jesus also, to defeat the devil. Those are the two things you need in order for Christian faith. Uh, you need to have uh, Jesus and his sacrifice, but you also need ha to have somebody speak it. You need to have somebody tell about it uh, before it can become a reality. So one, um, one of the stories I like to tell around Reformation is that uh, growing up on the farm, you know, sometimes I'd have to do chores late at night and in the dark. We didn't have a whole lot of lights as we're out in the, in the boonies anyhow. And uh, it's kind of spooky out there. And so I would sing. And that was scary enough because I wanted to, I wanted to keep demons and so forth away. We also had like sheep that would headbutt you when your back, back was turned and uh, mean roosters that would come with their uh, huge claws to try and you know gouge out your eyes and things like that. But the big, big thing was just kind of as a kid, 12, 13 years old, the devil. So I would sing, figure that would be scary enough, and then singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which talks about scaring away the devil with one little word, I can fell him. That, that's that's a great thing to do, and and that you might think he's being facetious when he talks about singing and scaring away the devil, uh, but uh, that is something that that Luther talked about, and uh, that is something that's a reality. If you even just think of Saul in the Old Testament, uh, when the demon would torment him, how did they uh, fix that problem? Well, they got David, or they got somebody to come and play music, and it would uh, it would. It, it soothe his uh, affliction with the demons. Um, I uh, just wanted to give you a chance to point out the, the fact that you share a name with the archangel, so I didn't know if uh, you wanted to tell everybody what your name means. It means one who is like God. And when we merged our churches this last year and we gave members the opportunity to submit names for the new church, I, I will be honest that one of the names that was submitted was St. Michael and All Angels Lutheran Church. Uh -huh. I'm not going to tell you who submitted that, <laughs> but it was one of the submissions. Um, I think this is significant. One who is like God, um, th there are some theories out there about the Michael being a name for Jesus, that this is actually Jesus himself, which if you say one who is like God, then that would have to be Jesus. I, uh, I actually lean more toward the direction of saying this isn't a created angel. Michael is. And uh, the way you translate his name is simply who is like God, because it, the, then what you're saying by asking the question is no one. No one is like God. And you forget the counterpart to that in the upcoming chapters when it talks about the beast of godless government uh it, it everybody's asking the question who is like the beast the greatest thing we can have is government uh well michael tells us the opposite no who is like god yeah, and then the uh, 
the dragon goes after the woman. So the devil's going after the Christian church, uh, finds her in the wilderness, in the desert, and then he spews water out of his mouth like a river. And so that's a picture of uh, continuing persecution of the church. And we're going to see that especially in chapter 13 as now the dragon has two beasts uh, work alongside him to go after and persecute the Christian church. And yet... Uh, God protects the woman, the Christian church, as the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So that's an imagery that Satan cannot destroy the church. He can attempt to pick off individual believers, her children. And this war, though, John says, is going to continue until the last day. And uh, I think the two wings that are given to her are like an eagle. Uh, they, they transport this woman from one place to another. I think that is somewhat similar to the way that uh, I just heard you before we started recording say that you're going to take some kids and transport them, including, I would assume, your daughter. Yeah, my daughter. Your daughter, Belle. You're going to take her and transport her from uh, high school back home again, kind of like these two wings are transporting the, the woman out into the desert. Just, just a reminder for uh, Mama Lightning, I didn't mention my daughters that you did. Uh, yeah, and then... Now I'm in trouble. Yeah, verse, verse 18, he stood on the shore of the sea. Who is the he there? Uh, Well, that's a good question, and I I think there are possibilities that you could take on either side, Um, but it it would seem, maybe maybe just to keep things simple, let's say it's the dragon, because the last word there of the previous chapter is Jesus, Um, and we did see Jesus standing on a seashore prior to this, uh, but uh, it kind of seems in the greater context this would be the dragon. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't remember, but I do now look at my notes. That we leave Satan standing on the shore of the sea. So if I would have looked a little further, I would have found out. Oh, there you go. All right, chapter uh, chapter thirteen then. So uh, the beasts, there are two beasts, and one of them comes from the sea, and one of them comes from the earth. Uh, You kind of need to, in order to understand these beasts, think about what you know about geography a lot, and what you know about Bible history a lot. Okay, so first of all, the beast out of the sea, uh, picture yourself as a Bible-believing Jew in ancient times, around the time of the New Testament, and... uh, you live in the Holy Land, and what is it that comes out of the sea? The sea is the big body of water to your west. In fact, the word in Hebrew for sea is identical to the word for west, because that's how they oriented themselves. And what's coming from the west? From the west, what's coming from the sea? Uh, it's it's the Romans. It's their boats. It's their governors. It's their soldiers. Uh, and and so it would have been a very clear picture for. Jews at Jesus' time, that a beast coming from the west, from the sea, would be Rome or the governing authorities that ruled over them at the time. Uh, The beast out of the earth, think about what I just said a second ago, the holy land, the holy land, and that's what they, that's what Jewish people to this day uh, are still, many of them still very fixated upon, and they were fixated upon at uh, biblical times, uh, the, the land, this is our land, this is the promised land, this piece of land 
Well, what's another word for land? It's earth. And uh, the holy land is, is where the uh, true religion exists, as they would see it. And uh, when there is a beast that then comes out from the middle of this holy piece of real estate, then uh, that is telling us uh, the first beast must be godless government and the second beast must be godless religion. Right. And so this first beast that comes out of the sea uh, is looking like a lion, a bear, a leopard and another beast with 10 horns. And again, knowing the rest of scripture, that's a direct uh, picture of Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel saw four different beasts and four different empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. But now in Revelation 13, those four beasts are combined into one beast, which represents all the government power that oppresses God's people during the New Testament era, the 42 months. And so, you know, we might think of uh, communism that squashes Christianity, uh, even in America, as you see our own government that's promoting more and more critical race theory and LGBTQ and that is shutting down and locking down churches and so forth. Whenever it does that, it's not saying that the gov- our American government, for example, is the beast, but it acts like the beast. Anytime a government that persecutes the Christian church, then it acts like the beast out of the sea. And this is what people still today uh, and I, I will I will say about our American government, um, we need to honor our authority figures and we need to submit to uh, the governor, the government. Um, and at the same time, I, I'll go back to that question. Who is like the beast? Um, that's really what people on both sides, I don't care what your political leanings are, people on both sides of the spectrum think that way about the beast of government. They, they say, well, you know, government can just solve all my problems. They can, the, the government can uh, pay for my, you know, pay for me to have a cell phone. The government can pay for my car insurance. The government can give me all these programs. College education. College education. Uh, but then on the other side of the spectrum, I think uh, the same thing happens with people who uh, are more capitalist minded or conservative. And uh, they think, well, you know, the great thing is we're, you know, American uh, uh, military force and uh, uh, we, we have to be proud and patriotic and who is like the beast? Who is, uh, and I've actually heard even uh, pastors preach, this is years ago, uh, somebody who isn't, who has gone on to glory, uh, but uh, talking about how unique America is. And, and it is. Uh, this was somebody who had visited a lot of foreign countries and seen a lot of poverty and a lot of uh, uh, suppression of human rights. Uh, and, and the individual said that we are living in a great country where we have a lot of freedom to be able to do some things. Uh, but uh, he went so far in his sermon as to say, uh, there is nowhere like America. And it, I couldn't help but think of Revelation 13, it sounds a little bit like we're getting close to saying who is like the beast. And, and really what we should be saying is who, Michael, who is like God? Yeah. And so that's the, the difficulty. Uh, Jeremy and I have mentioned this before when we were talking about 
uh, Romans 13 and First uh, Peter chapter 2 of submitting to the government, that we balance Romans 13 of submitting to the government because it is God's appointed authority. But then also understanding in Revelation 13 that the government can become the beast out of the sea when it persecutes Christians. And so at that time when it is uh, affecting especially our uh, spiritual, mirror, uh, our spiritual, mental, and medical freedoms. Then we stand up to that to that beast. Michael, because, let me yeah. let me take what exactly you're saying at this very moment okay. and uh, share with you where my eyes were glancing was on verse seven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Um, what happens in a war? There's fighting. Uh, yeah. Uh, on both sides. Yes, this is, yes. Yeah, okay. It's a good point. Yep. But the beautiful thing is uh, that all those who make their home on earth will worship the beast. That's not so good. But those whose names have been, uh, those whose names have not been written in the book of life, then they are going to be slain. But that means, though, if you and I have our names written in the book of life, even though the beast comes after us, which will, uh, in the history of the world with governments, it, they will turn on Christianity. We are safe. But then there's a second beast that works alongside of the dragon and the first beast. The, the second beast, like you mentioned, the false religions of the world, they are trying to get people to worship the first beast. And, and maybe we should even sharpen that a little bit. Uh, this isn't just any false religion. This is the beast that came out of the land, the holy land, and has all of these features that uh, look like Jesus, two horns like a lamb. Um, and uh, uh, able it, to perform miracles. We, we should we should specify this is this is godless Christianity. Uh, this is the Christian religion uh, without any of the heart and core doctrine in it. And again, that fits exactly with what Paul wrote in Second Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, with every kind of miracle that is, with false signs and wonders, and with every kind of unrighteousness that deceives those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Later on, this uh, same character in the book of Revelation, the beast out of the land, is going to uh, take on another name. Uh, so keep track of that. He's going to end up becoming called the false prophet or the, the prophet. Um, so that's still the beast out of the land, the false Christianity, the false religion uh, within the church. But um, uh, how do you handle the... Uh, the, the is this a curve? Am I throwing you a curveball, or uh, do you want to talk about 666? I was hoping that you were going to take a breath so I could ask you the question about what 666 is. Uh, I'll answer it if you want. Or Well, let me, let me say this. So since it's a symbolic number, and 7 is the number of God's complete plan in Revelation, then 666 can mean triple failure. 
Right. I, I always, yes, that's, that's where I end up too. I, I always try to get a little nitpicky with uh, the, the numbers of seven and 10. I, th- I, I like saying 10 is the number of completion and uh, seven is three and four, God communing with his creation. Um, sometimes that's in judgment, seven bowls of wrath and so forth. But uh, three and four, uh, the Trinity and the four corners of the globe um, is God. God communing with his creation and what is Satan always trying to do? He's always trying to mimic God and uh, commune with or interact with people. Uh, and what we see here is that so often you're going to see 666 as, ah, this is the voodoo that, in, you know, it calls up Satan from the abyss. And you, this is how you, if you put this number on things, it's, it's bad luck or something like that. No, I like to teach it more like this is our, um, mockery chant, like a stadium chant at a sporting event where you want to make fun of the other team. Uh, this is what we do to Satan. We say, you are a triple failure. Yeah, I found this sentence as a great uh, great thing I found in the, my notes of Satan often comes close in his attempts to destroy God's kingdom. At Bethlehem, he missed only one baby, but he always falls short. Hmm. That was that was a good point by the commentator. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but six six six, it's not uh, what, what do they say? Barcodes. It's not a, a chip. Oh, your uh, credit card. Your uh, yeah. If you everybody has to have this. Uh, no, it, the whole point of it is it's something you can't see. Right. The, the mark of the beast is something in the in the spiritual realm. So don't yeah. There I talk to people that were wondering that maybe about vaccine that the vaccine is yeah, the passport the mark of the beast or the vaccine passport is the mark of the beast no you can't see the mark of the beast it's not going to be a visible thing so let me tell you this story <clears throat> to kind of tie in chapter 12, 13 and 14 then is uh, years ago i went to the prison in uh, sturdivant which is just outside of racine to visit tyler tyler had been baptized at our congregation Racine at Epiphany. And then he fell away even after his confirmation class. I mean, he stole from his grandmother who loved him very much. He got into drugs and so forth. But Tyler had asked me to come to jail, uh, to the prison to visit him. And, and I went there and he started crying. And he told me that uh, he had hated God so much as a teenager that you know, he stole and he got into drugs, but he even got into Satanism. And he hated God so much he had the number of the beast, 666, tattooed on his heart. And he hmm. said, I don't want that anymore. And, and I told him, Tyler, that's just a tattoo, a, a mark on your skin. Then we looked at Revelation 14 that talks about another mark, and I told him that mark, that seal of the cross, that was placed on you at your baptism. That God isn't looking at the 666 that's written on the skin over your heart. What God looks at is the mark of the cross that was placed on you at your baptism. No one else can see that, but God can see that. That trumps a physical mark of the beast on your chest. And then he cried some more, but that was tears of joy. Nice. That's that's a great story. Um, we, yeah, we have the lamb and the 144,000 uh, in, in chapter 14. 
And uh, the, there is this uh, promise. That, that's a great transition. I, I don't think I even need to say too much more about the 144,000. Uh, it's simply that number that says all the believers. Uh, it's not a. It's not a. It's not a number for counting. It's a number for communicating. It's all of the believers that have ever existed and have received the promise of eternal life. Um, they, we come to three angels in verse six. Um, and uh, oh, I guess there was that thing in verse four about the, not defile themselves with women. Um, that, that doesn't really have anything to do with uh, marriage or marital relationships. Uh, it has more to do with being uh, obsessed with the, the soft and pleasant things in life. Uh, that's kind of the picture of, of women there is if you're if you're uh, I'm sorry, the picture of using the image of a woman for things in life that are pleasant and soft. And, and if you're obsessed with that and you think that is what is uh, the main thing in life is just to be comfortable all the time, um, then uh, that, is, that is what this uh, is a curse or speaking against. And so they're standing on Mount Zion. Uh, and Mount Zion, so there's a number of churches around here and maybe where you're listening from, uh, that are called Mount Zion and that Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion uh, in heaven. And before we saw the 144,000 saints that John sees streaming out of the tribulation, coming up out of the earth, now we see those saints in heaven. And they're singing a new song. Uh, that's the gospel. Uh, the good news of the gospel is always a new song, even though it's an ancient message, because on earth we never outgrow our need for it, because we sin every day. We need to hear the new song of forgiveness every day. If and that, that's a reminder for all of you to keep going to church, even though I know that liturgy, I know those, those stories, I've heard that sermon before. Well, yeah. But still, even though you've heard it before, maybe the pastor has the same kind of stories or the same kind of law and gospel, and you hear the, the scripture readings, the same ones every three years, and you sing the same hymns a few times every year, it's a new gospel because you're a, a new sinner, actually an old sinner, but you sin new every day. You need a new gospel. There are two things I would say to that. If you if you feel tired of the old-fashioned way of, of worshiping, um, first of all, well, three things. First of all, there's nothing wrong with um, writing and, and uh, singing and composing new music, um, but... Uh, hearing the same Bible stories over and over, uh, think of it this way. You're, you're going to die someday, and dying is sometimes an instantaneous process, but for most of us, uh, a lot of the way that humans die is a long, drawn-out process, and, and there's a German word for it, Todesangst, um, and that means th over the period, well, that's that doesn't just mean the process of dying. It also refers to a phenomenon that is very real that happens when people die, that Satan th saves some of his worst attacks for that time in your life. And uh, 
if that is true, then you will want to know, like the back of your hand, all of those Bible stories. You will want to be well-versed in uh, those, those familiar hymns uh, because you will need every bit of armor and uh, weaponry for spiritual warfare that you can at, the, at that time in your life. Um, and the other one I wanted to say was that, yeah, the story may be the same as when you heard it when you were six years old, uh, but you are a different person than when you were six. And there's a different reason now that God wants you to hear that story today under these circumstances of your life. So apply it, uh, apply that same old story differently. Um, yeah. yeah, just to build on that real quickly, uh, the same old story. So last month we had our soccer camp and then the next week I went and visited two of our homebound members in the nursing home and it struck me as I was giving a devotion to them and I reused a devotion I had used at soccer camp and and I told both uh, Charles and Jackie it was really neat when it struck me that I had both of their great-grandchildren they're two separate members and I realized, hey, I visited your great-grandchildren. I visited your great-grandchildren at the soccer camp. And now, using the exact same message with the great-grandparents, both who have a little bit of dementia, and... Uh, That's the, oh, there's, there's another big one. How many of us, uh, when we get older, develop forgetfulness? And how doesn't that make it? I, I'm sorry, I yeah, cut off your point, but dementia is another great reason to repeat these truths over and over. Yeah, with, with Charles, for example, he has no idea how old he is. He can't remember. And yet he will say along with me the song of Simeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is just a great reminder of a new, new gospel. Um, I, I feel like I want to say so much more. I've uh, visited so many people with dementia, but um, uh, I'm just going to try to move on to um, the text that uh, a man named, a uh, pastor named John Bugenhagen used for uh, Martin Luther's funeral sermon. Uh, he said that uh, the pastor who preached for Martin Luther's funeral sermon, Bugenhagen, said that uh, Martin Luther was uh, predicted about in the book of Revelation chapter 14 when there was an angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim. Uh, and I think that's a good thing to say. This actually is a, a reading in some lectionaries for the uh, Festival of Reformation Sunday. But um, e- even if you would disagree with me in Bugenhagen that uh, this isn't this isn't talking about Martin Luther, uh, or you would if you would say this isn't talking about Martin Luther, you at least have to say, well, it's talking about him because he's a preacher of the gospel, and this is talking about all preachers of the gospel. Right. And then uh, verse 10, another angel, a third one, is saying that those that worship the beast and have the mark on, of the beast on their forehead or on their hand, He will also drink from the wine of God's wrath. Notice this part, which has been undiluted into the cup of his anger. So wine back in the ancient times was often mixed with water in order to dilute it. But here, God's wrath is not diluted. It is poured out full strength. For us as God's saints, one of the images I like to use all the time is that Jesus drank every drop of God's wrath. We don't get any of the undiluted wrath. But when uh, the unbelievers reject Christ as the lamb of their sacrifice, then they get it all on them. 
And then verse 11, he continues, those who worship the beast and his image, uh, they're going to have no rest day and night. What a contrast that is for us again as saints in Revelation chapter 7. And it talked about all of the things that heaven is not. And one of the places, one of the things is there's no heat or uh, the sun beating down on us. There's no uh, mourning or crying. And we are resting uh, in front of the, th- the throne of the Lamb. Uh, you have a powerful verse uh, and thought in verse 13. Um, it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And that is a sort of counterintuitive thing to say, but that's the gospel all through and through is, is counterintuitive. Um, but uh, we would, yeah, we would normally say uh, you see somebody who's dead and, and you think um, that person is cursed. We're not supposed to be dead. We're supposed to be living creatures. But uh, here, God says, no, blessed are the dead who die. And it's not just anybody. <laughs> I think I've, I've told this story, but maybe not on this podcast. The one time that I went to a, a funeral of a relative of one of our members in uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, and it was one of the other churches in Benton Harbor. It was uh, some kind of African Methodist Episcopal or a Baptist church. And uh, I, I was the only white guy in the crowd. But uh, I thought, I want to I attend and show support and see this. And it was interesting. One of the pastors, they, they have a whole series of pastors who uh, get up and say different things about the deceased. Well, I, did, I got the sense that not all of the pastors knew the deceased that well. And then there was one who said, uh, he, he basically said, boy, you go to some funerals these days, and it pretty well sounds like everybody's going to heaven. Yeah. But not everybody's going to heaven. And I thought, boy, I sure hope he's not making a commentary on the relative of my members who are grieving the loss. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, that's, it doesn't just say, blessed are the dead who die, period. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Verse 16, uh, it says... And the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So there's a lot of uh, imagery in the Gospels from Jesus. There's imagery in our hymns of the harvest. Uh, So this harvesting and trampling grapes, and the comparison of juice being the blood of grapes, appears elsewhere. Again, Isaiah, Joel, Lamentations, and so forth. But as I read this, I was thinking of the imagery that's pictured in the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. And just uh, listen to, I'm not going to sing it, but listen to it. And then uh, you pick up on the imagery from uh, Revelation 14, verse 16. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I can just think of, all I can think of is the, weren't there some VeggieTale characters called the Grapes of Wrath? <laughs> there might, there very well might have been. Uh, in chapter 15, uh, we get another set of sevens, uh, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Uh, and we have a, a reference to Moses and the Song of Moses uh, in, in verse 3 and following. Um, 
there are uh, there is a picture of heaven and the uh, angels and the plagues and um, it you might think it, it gets just a little bit uh, repetitive with some things that we've seen before. Um, but as we've been saying recent in just a minute ago, um, the re repetition is a good thing. What else do you have to say on this? This version? But the, the key is that, uh, did you not, did you not mean to jump into 15 yet? Yeah, I did. I just don't have a oh. whole lot that, uh, to, to add to chapter 15, except that these bowls of wrath, uh, it is the same imagery we've seen before, but now it's, it's intensified. Uh, and John then looks and he sees uh, the sanctuary of the tent of the testimony. That was the dwelling place that God built uh, or had Moses build in Exodus as a special place of God's presence as he dwelt among the people of Israel. But here, this picture is used to indicate that the seven plagues come from God because they come out of his sanctuary. And then, like the Old Testament dwelling built by Moses, the temple in Jerusalem was a place that was a special sign of God's presence. But the true temple is going to be in heaven. And, and in the body of Jesus himself, he said, destroy this temple and I will build it back up in three days. Um, his, his body is where God dwells physically among us. We don't need a building anymore uh, to be the temple. Uh, we have Jesus' human body that is the, the dwelling of God uh, among mankind. Um, I, I guess the only other thing I would say about chapter 15 is something that I was just teaching uh, in uh, Acts chapter 9 for uh, my students today and, and over this week. Uh, it says that the church grew in fear when, when Saul was finally converted. Uh, it says the church grew in fear, uh, in the fear of the Lord. And that might sound like, well, now Saul is on your side. You don't need to be afraid of him anymore. Uh, well, no, the, the point is not being afraid of Saul or a terrorist. The point is, when God says something, you take it seriously. He's not messing around when he speaks things. Uh, and that's true of his law, but it's also true of his good news that you should say, like Abraham long ago, um, Yes, uh, Abraham, you're going to have a child. Your wife, uh, someone at grandma's age, is going to give birth to a baby. Abraham took that word seriously. And this is what we see in chapter 15 is uh, a God who does not want us to think that he is joking around. He's, not, he's being very dead serious about his threats and about his good news. And then just to tie things up a little bit. John sees this sea of glass mixed with fire, and then they're singing the song of Moses. Again, go back to the book of Exodus, and you see Moses and the Israelites standing over, or standing next to the sea, uh, the Red Sea, after it's uh, drowned all of the Egyptians, all of God's enemies, and they sing the song of Moses. Uh, and then also in Revelation, here it's talking about uh, the sanctuary, that it's too late to enter the temple on Judgment Day. Those who have despised God's word become hardened to it, and then they're hardened by God. And then the seven plagues mark the end of the world. Uh, it is then that believers will enter the sanctuary of God's heaven with their glorified bodies. So 
just to wrap up then, Jeremy, with this chapter, when will we, as God's saints and those listening to us, when we stand around the sea and sing the song of Moses? Uh, Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, so you're really asking me an inappropriate question. (laughs) Well, we do know it'll be on the last day. That's what Ah, I was looking for. On the last day. When the enemies of God's church are destroyed and then we are gathered together in eternity. Anything else? This was uh, a chapter, we didn't time it well with the chapters because chapter 15 makes it sort of a not very happy ending at this point, for this episode anyway. Yeah. But you can continue in your daily Bible readings. As if you follow Pastor Hagen's schedule, you're going to be going through Ephesians and Malachi. But Jeremy and I talked about that we're going to keep going through Revelation for the next two weeks. So uh, keep on reading Revelation 16 through 22. Add that to your schedule. We're probably not going to have time to do commentary on Malachi and Ephesians. We're going to do the rest of Revelation, and then we'll all be back together again on the same schedule in a few weeks on Matthew. But today, we discuss the great dragon with the seven heads. I don't know if you know your Godzilla monster verse very well, but there's a three-headed dragon that shoots lightning out of its mouth. So this is Pastor Zarling with King Ghidorah. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.